The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. All are welcome here. You're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Truth Transforms. Join in for spiritually enlightening discussion and the practical application of new thought principles. Here's your host, Reverend Galen McDowell. Welcome to Truth Transforms. I'm your host, Galen McDowell, the Executive Minister, Senior Assistant Minister, and the Director of the Johnny Coleman Institute at Christ Universal Temple in Chicago, Illinois, where the Reverend Dr. Derrick B. Wells is the Senior Minister, and the Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman is the founder. Uh, today, I'm bringing back a guest I just had on a couple of weeks ago, but we had such a great time doing the show. I said, hey, you got to come back as soon as possible. And she said yes. So without further ado, I have uh, minister, thought leader, transformational success, and consciousness building coach, the Reverend Lola Wright. How are you doing there, Reverend Lola? I am great. So happy to be with you. Love this community that you've created. I've engaged with them since I was with you last. Some of them are getting my daily text reminders of truth each morning now. So thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So today I want to drill down a little bit deeper into the conversation that we were having a couple of weeks ago. And primarily I want to drill down around well, let me, a few things. But the first one is um, dealing with how we give meaning to everything in life and how we, how do we separate giving meaning, in other words, creating a, a story versus what the actual facts are. So first of all, can we just drill down what does it mean to give meaning to everything? Yeah. I mean, we have this incredible capacity to interpret and to storytell. It is one of our great gifts. So I think it's important to understand that our story-making capacity is not a problem. The question is, are you writing stories that serve you and are in alignment with that which you desire? So a circumstance or a condition occurs. Then we filter it through our lens of perception, which is formed by our memories, our beliefs, our social agreements, our family agreements, our cultural agreements. Some of those beliefs, some of those agreements, some of those memories haven't always served us. And if we aren't in an active practice of examining like the the soup we're swimming in or the soil we're growing in, if we're not in an active practice of examining that, we're going through life creating unconsciously through stories that may not be aligned with what we desire and what we ultimately truly value. 
Beautiful, beautiful. So, you know, when, you know, when, when I teach meaning to people, I often use the analogy of how as parents, a parent has an attachment to their children uh, that allows them to be able to see their children in a crowd, even though I might not mm-hmm. be able to find your child in a crowd. I would tell people, I say, if this chapel at Christ Universal Temple, 3,000 seats was full, I said, within a matter of seconds, I guarantee you I can find my daughter. Not because my daughter has any more value as a human being than your child, but because of the meaning I give it, it creates focus on Mm. what matters most to me. Mm. Now, what ends up happening, uh, you know, is what happens when that necessarily isn't working in our favor, when we have been conditioned through many things, you know, upbringing, culture, um, education, bias, media, et cetera, to focus on things that don't necessarily produce our highest good. Well, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think some of what I hear you saying is when we don't actually scrutinize how we're assigning meaning or value to something. So we're like these these highly receptive sponges that are constantly absorbing the world around us. And if we don't cultivate discernment and determine what we want to absorb and what we want to say, no, thank you. You know, this is what I love about the power of affirmative prayer that was taught by Ernest Holmes. You know, there's, there's a style of affirmative prayer called argumentative prayer. And what that basically involves is being like, I deny that, that I'm available for this. I'm a no to that, you know? And so if we are highly receptive creatures and we're not exercising discernment and then refining our skills, we're just at the mercy of the external world. And I think one of the things that was so transformative for me in coming into this philosophy that has, you know, it's become very popularized, like create your own reality. But it really is this notion that you have agency, you have capacity, you are this holy channel, this divine vessel that can actually produce in this dimension of reality circumstances and conditions that are in alignment with what you value. So if we become to know, if we come to know ourselves as highly creative, then we have to be scrutinizing everything that we're experiencing. I mean, you posted a great um, Eckhart Tolle quote on this, just, you know, sort of related to this on Facebook recently, this idea of like, you know, if you are having circumstances in your life, consider that this is an opportunity for you to cultivate a new set of um, awareness or skills or capacity. So rather than seeing life as being an attack on you, we start to work with life versus against life. Yes, yes. Uh, I I don't know if you're talking about, because I was going to bring it up, uh, a quote that I actually posted on my personal page yesterday, which was, from Eckhart Tolle, life will give you whatever experience is most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. How do you need Mm -hmm. this? How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you are having at the moment. I love that so much. 
I think that is like so brilliant. I instantly screenshotted that and shared it in my Our Circle membership community because I was like, this is exactly what we're talking about. How do you know it's what, what is of value to you? Because you have, the con- you have consciousness. You actually have the capacity to see, but that does require spaciousness so that you don't think that you're just, again, a victim to life. Life is happening to me, and I'm just, like, you know, reacting all the time. My mom used to have a Post-it note in her bathroom right at the light switch growing up, and it said, act, not react. You know, like, in other words, take responsibility for for co-creating the reality you desire rather than just being in a perpetually triggered and reactive state on, like, the defense, if you will. Right, right. Now, what's interesting, um, Alola, is that quote that I just read that you share with your community created uh, quite the stir on Facebook yesterday. So, um, oh, really? Yes. So, uh, a mutual, I don't know if you know him personally, I've had him on the show, a mutual person from the Science of Mind community, Harvey Bishop, he screenshotted it and shared it or something like that. But in other words, he, and then he copied me on it, like, hey, you know, Reverend Galen McDowell shared this. Thank you. What do you think? And it st- stirred up the pot, um, including, you know, amongst many of our good friends, <laughs> I would say, mm-hmm. like people we know, both of us know in the New Thought community mm-hmm. about the level mm-hmm. of agreement and disagreement with the quote. Um, what was interesting mm-hmm. to me, and I'm going to actually reach out to some of these people over the next couple of weeks, because I'm going to bring them on the show to talk about this particular quote, mm-hmm. uh, uh, because the most of them disagreed with it at levels. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, these are not like these are people I've known in the New Thought community for a long time. Some more than others, but some as long as a, more than a decade. And I have so many thoughts and assumptions that I bet I could weave together based on that. Yes. Yes. So, so one of the things, you know, and I don't just want to, you know, just start name dropping because I don't think it would be appropriate in the midst of, they're not here to discuss their point of view, but I'm going to ask them to come on the show to discuss their point of view, because from my perspective, and this is just my perspective, um, as I was reading the debate, because I'm actually copied on the, on the, on it, and people were talking about this is privilege, and this is, um, you know, uh, what's the word, um, um, spiritual bypass, and other things. And I, it's, I'm not saying that those things don't exist. My position uh-huh. of, and the reason why I posted it was, I'm as a New Thought minister, as a as a person who teaches consciousness transformation and universal law. I'm always trying to find the balance, and I think you do a great job of this. Find the balance between responsibility and choice and what we produce via law, universal law, reaping and sowing, cause and effect, seed time harvest, versus the conversation around life is happening to me and I'm reacting. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I'm just going to say what I'm going to say. I would bet if I were to look at who had a reaction to that quote, the vast majority of those people at at the level of identity would identify as progressive white people. One of the things I love about you and the work that you bring in the world is you have the capacity to teach nuance. 
And so it's unfortunate that people are just waking up to the conversation of privilege such that they would not have the ability to hear a quote like that without reading it through that lens. And I trust that they are where they are in their own consciousness. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, I mean, it's just funny to me. It's just, oh, I have so much I could say about that. But I guess what, what I will also say what I will also say is that life is filled with paradox. And that's exactly the nuance I'm talking about. If you don't have the capacity to understand the truth in that statement and not also say, of course, people can be brats. They can be jerks. They can be unconscious. They can, you know, spiritually bypass, of course. But that's not unique to that quote. Come on. Right, right. So, you know, I was going to jump into the conversation, but I say, you know what, let me just allow it to unfold because then they start debating with each other about what they mean, meant and et cetera. And it, it was just an interesting conversation. And, you know, and again, not saying I'm, you know, saying that or making someone wrong. I come from the position uh, as a person who, and I'm not saying my metaphysics or your metaphysics is purer than anyone else's. What I am saying is I'm a big believer that this is a universe that is governed by spiritual principles or divine laws. I believe that. I believe that wholeheartedly. Two, it, and I said this, and I don't remember we had this conversation. You know, we talk, you know, we would talk so much about so many things. But I've said I've been saying for the last probably 12 or 13 years, with if I said the more new thought gets away from teaching the power of the message, consciousness transformation, uh, the, the utilization of spiritual law, the more you will see less demonstrations. In other words, the people who started this movement, the Ernest Holmes, the Charles and Myrtle Fillmores, the Joel Goldsmiths, the Nevilles, the Melinda Kramers, the Nona Brooks, these people demonstrated healings from the brink of what we call death. They they, mm -hmm. they created prosperity and wholeness. You know, the founder of our movement, Johnny Coleman, came back from a six-month prognosis and diagnosis. A black woman from Mississippi who was 32 years old figured, learned this truth and saved her life and then said, I need to take this message to my community, built the largest church in, uh, at the time, first mega church in Chicago, that wasn't supposed to happen in her 60s. That wasn't supposed mm -hmm. to happen. One of the first TV evangelists. That wasn't supposed to happen. But she believed and taught that I am the thinker who thinks the thought that makes the thing. And she drilled it in us. Therefore, mm -hmm. when I came along many years later in 93 and heard this message, I was able to not only get the message, but heal my own body from almost dying from asthma because I believe that you can demonstrate this truth. I'm a big believer that the more new thought just becomes a progressive, liberal theology without teeth, the less demonstrations we will have. And I've been saying it for at least 12 years. I just want to get your thoughts on that. I completely, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And the thought that I'm having is that like, you know, in all the years of classes that I taught at Bodie Center in Chicago, when I led that community, people would always challenge this concept by saying, well, how do you explain 
you know, someone being raped and brutalized, or how do you explain institutionalized or systemic racism? There are a couple things I would say to that. Number one, we love to think obtusely. We love to think conceptually because it avoids us having to take personal responsibility. So I would say to that, if you can see institutional racism and you can see systemic racism, then that is what life is giving you to develop your consciousness. So how do you know you're seeing that and it is of value to you? Because it is the experience you are having. So I think the problem here is like people will say things like that. And number one, it, it prevents them from taking personal responsibility for what's going on. So if we were to take life will give you whatever experience is mo most helpful for the evolution of your consciousness. That is true at the level of the personal and that is true at the level of the collective. So the dissonance and the dis-ease we are experiencing collectively on the planet right now is precisely the experience that we need to evolve our state of consciousness. Now, racism doesn't exist without collusion. Privilege doesn't exist without collusion. So when people just try to be smart using buzzwords, it's completely useless, meaningless. It actually doesn't evolve anything. It doesn't move anything forward. I just I have a very low threshold, to be totally frank, with people who love to use smart language about social issues in particular with no meaningful self-reflection on how they are colluding with those social systems and agreements on a daily basis. So don't say something smart on Facebook and not be like massively examining your own life. Right, right. And I think it's easy to point the finger, uh, especially when, when people who came before you did work, put in the work, and made the sacrifices to build something and you don't have skin in the game. And when I mean skin in the game, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'll never forget a conversation I had with, and I wish you would have met her. You would have loved her. The Reverend Dr. Mary Tumpkin, you would have loved her. Uh, mm -hmm. So we're in the CUT bookstore one day and we're walking by it. And she said um, that, she was looking at some people's books and she was like, oh, that book isn't where, you know, you know, judgments around the books. And she said, spirit said to her, but they're published. And, and mm. for her, that meant they put their thoughts on the line. The moment you publish, the moment you speak, the moment you create the programs, whatever, you're putting your thoughts, your beliefs, your concepts on the line for evaluation, even criticism. The question comes into play is, for me at least, is when we're working with uh, uh, the, the the concepts of spiritual principles, religion, philosophy, self-help, what, again, are you doing to see how, uh, well, let me rephrase this, how are you applying what you believe to make your life better? To where you're not in right. reaction mode, but you're realizing that you're cause. Because if you don't believe that you're cause in your life individually, then you've stripped out a major factor of this philosophy. You know, wh what are your thoughts around that? 
Well, the thought I'm having is, you know, it would be really convenient for me to go to McDonald's three meals a day. It would be inexpensive. It would be convenient. And to some extent, it would taste really delicious because I love some McDonald's French fries. Man. That being said, it would require very little of me. It would not cause me to be investing in the well-being of my body and my mind and my soul. And just because something is easy doesn't mean it's right. So right. I say that to say like these oversimplifications of these concepts is like just it's it's here's what i want to say for those people who are listening do yourself a service to understand these concepts more robustly and that is to teachers and leaders also and i say that because i have witnessed so many people wonder why they aren't producing the results in their lives that they desire. And it's because they're using a McDonald's version of these principles and practices. You're not going to have the, the, the body or the health or the mental state that you want on a McDonald's diet. I just, I, I, I don't know, like this is where I'm just like. <laughs> well, we have, a, we have a caller, so let me bring the caller in. Revelola, hold on. Stan, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm here. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Do you have, do you have a question for Revelola? Um, yeah. Well, I have a a comment, I suppose. But you guys have talked about um several things since I've been hanging on, and uh, so now I'm I, I've got like several things that I wanted to say, but uh, I'll try to. Just narrow it down to have, one. You have, you have those, about the, five minutes to get it, get it all out, Stan. Oh, we can oh, answer the questions oh, yeah, if this, we have to on the on the other end of the break. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, well, the, the first thing that I was wanted to uh, comment on is you were saying that there was a quote, and it went something like, "Life will give you every experience uh, for the evolution of your consciousness," or something along those lines. Um, I, I think that's true. You know, I, I teach college. And one of the things that people, that students say all the time, uh, whether it's college level or whether it's, um, you know, in uh, public schools, is that they have a problem. They have trouble with classes because they don't know how that applies to their life. In other words, they feel mm -hmm. that, you know, it's useless. And what I try to communicate to them every time is nothing is useless because because I've had many situations where I've learned something, I, I heard something, I experienced something, and never thought about it again 10 years later, 20 years later, all of a sudden that information comes back or that situation becomes relevant. Uh, so everything, uh, so I agree with that, uh, that quote, that every experience that you have, everything that happens um, in your life, everything you learn, and again, particularly, um, I think this is relevant for um, students because if students understand that you are you're acquiring a a body of knowledge, you're not just learning X. Uh, because in order to be you know well rounded, in order to actually be versed, um, I, I think um, uh, one last thing I want to say about this. Um, I think it was Zig Ziglar. He said that that in order for you to learn and grow, you take what you know and then you couple that 
with the new information. So in other words, you get some information and you know, you couple that with something that you already know, and then that's how you grow. And I think that's very valuable as well. So, so I definitely agree with that um, comment. Uh, now, the the other thing I wanted to say real quick, and this this is a, a caution for Reverend Wright. Um, you had you mentioned um, uh, institutional racism, and you talked about um, how progressive white. You felt that progressive white people would respond in a particular way to that comment that Reverend McDowell had made. Uh, so I just wanted to see if you can elaborate on that. Like, why? What? Why do you feel that progressive white people would respond in in that way? Like, what? Uh, could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the good news is that there is an evolution in consciousness occurring among white identified people around the history of racism in America, particularly the history of anti-blackness on the planet, the uh, implications of that today. So I think that, you know, the good news is that I do believe that there is a waking up among white identified people. Now, the challenge is that um, it's become almost in vogue. And I will tell you that fads change very little. So being someone who can talk about these things academically doesn't necessarily translate into anything meaningful. And, you know, I, I guess the question that I would have, like if we're, if we're to map this on to racism, for example, I would ask, white identified people who are examining the implications of racism, how have you contributed and created to created the very thing that you're now incensed by? And furthermore, what are you doing in your own life to reconcile that, to, uh, uh, you know, take, take responsibility for that, to, to untangle from the ways that you collude with that. Like, I guess what I would say is I just have witnessed so many well-intended, progressive, liberal, white-identified people say all the right things. And when push comes to shove, it's like their lives are still deeply, deeply enmeshed and entrenched with the very systems and structures they're critiquing. And they can very easily say some of the most unconscious things imaginable. We're going to have to stop there, Reverend Lowland Stan, because we had to take this break. Thanks for the call, Stan. We'll be right back with True Transform. Okay, thank you. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today.
positivity and inclusivity. You're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Truth Transforms with your host, Reverend Galen McDowell. Welcome back to Truth Transforms. I have my guest today, the Reverend Lola Wright, and we're talking about responsibility, choice, universal law, how every experience has its own lesson and blessing in it when we can when we can see it. And uh, Reverend Lola, before we go into any more, could you give people again your contact information about how can they get in contact through your website, your your text, um, your text messages, and things of that nature, so people can follow you? Yeah, check me out at lolawright.com. Two ways to actively engage with me are through the radical reminders that I send out via text message every morning. I do them in text form and as a voice memo. So you can text me at 773-923-0358. Just say I'm in and you'll get a daily voice memo for me at about 7 a.m. Central Time. It's a great practice to wake up to. My intention is to have a thousand people on the planet receiving these truth texts or radical reminders every day, holding the consciousness of a life of affirmation and imagination. I have 250 people presently, and I'd love to grow it to a thousand. So if that interests you, check that out. And then also follow me on social media at Lola P. Wright. I am most active on Instagram, but you can find me on Facebook, TikTok, and almost never on Twitter. So um, would love to find you there also. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I do want to let people know that if you want to call in and ask a question, you can call in at 816-251-3555, 816-251-3555. You want to call in and ask Reverend Lola Wright about consciousness transformation, how you give meaning uh, to life, how you can radically change your life for the better. You want to make sure that you give yourself the opportunity to ask the questions now. So, Reverend Lola, one of the uh, questions that I want to talk about, and we've kind of covered it already about responsibility and choice and things of those uh, of that nature, but I want to drill down on it a little bit more about um, how do you separate the story, literally, like, okay, this is what happened. Now, what is the story that I've made up about this? And I know a lot of groups teach this, things we've gone to, books we've read, organizations that we've studied with. Uh, It's not unique to one group, even though people sometimes believe it it is, but it isn't. Uh, How do you tackle the conversation around this is what happened, this is the meaning, and is this meaning empowering or disempowering to you? Mm Mm-hmm. So I talk reliably about three primary dimensions of the lived experience. The outermost experience is in the world of form, the body of our affairs, otherwise known as the facts. The way that I articulate the facts are that which can be caught on camera and are not subject, subject to interpretation. Now, that's like actually a very small amount of data. You know, like Mm -hmm. most of our existence is interpretive. 
so for example, when I do this practice with people, um, I'll say, you know, so describe a fact that you're experiencing. And they'll say, okay, I'm cold. And I'm like, well, cold is actually very subjective. What's cold to you may be very different than what's cold to me. So a more accurate statement might be, my uh, body is registering a temperature of 98.6. I'm noticing uh, shaking in my shoulders and in my arms. And then I'm noticing I'm grabbing a sweater to put on my body. You know, like those are the facts. It's like there's no interpretation there. It's literally right. just a reporting of data. And by the way, data like that, like the facts are not where we get juiced up. Now, where we get juiced up is when we talk about the story. Well, I'm feeling freezing. And my experience is, you know, Nathan, my husband, you love to keep this flipping house at like 66 degrees and you're cheap. You're so worried about the gas bill that you want to keep the house cold all the time. And you have no consideration for my experience of being comfortable. And you know what, by the way, I grew up with not a lot of money. So this is a very triggering experience for me. And I don't appreciate when we can afford to pay for gas that you're trying to hold back on the heat. <laughs> that would be the realm of stories. It's like something occurred and then we made up a whole series of storylines about it that keep our existence intact. We are deeply attached to our stories because part of the ego construct is to always and reliably be right so that it can establish safety, security, approval, and control. So, you know, that's the distinction between facts and stories. And then, you know, I always say the facts are the outermost realm of experience. The, the stories are what, are what we might call our subconscious mind. Then if you go even deeper into the secret place of the most high, the indwelling presence, you will find yourself able to access and connect with the truth of all life, the truth of your very being, which is whole. So that's sort of how I, I see them as three concentric circles. Now that's sort of the framework that I, I use, facts, stories, truth. And the extent to which you cannot discern between facts, stories, and truth is the extent to which you will be locked in an experience of suffering. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, Reverend Lola, it, what you were mentioning reminded me of a conversation many years ago. And I share this story from time to time on this show and on Facebook and in sermons uh, when I went to visit a buddy of mine's. Uh, wife in the hospital, probably about 15 years ago now. And she was um, having some serious health challenges and over and over again, hospitalizations over and over again, procedures. And when I showed up, she was on the phone explaining to one of her friends or family members in graphic detail, everything that the doctor said. And I could see it on her face and in her body language, what it was doing to her having to explain it. So I said mm -hmm. to her, when she got off the phone, we talked, et cetera. I said, you mind if I share something with you? And she said, sure. I said, unless it's someone who absolutely needs to know, like your husband or your mama or your daddy, mm -hmm. stop explaining to people about all these things that's going wrong in your body and the diagnosis and the prognosis and things of that nature. I said, every time somebody calls you from now on, I'm asking you to tell them 
I'm working on my healing. Pray for my healing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, like, it makes me think of Virgil. It makes me think of Virgil Abloh. You know, nobody knew he was sick. I, I, I have some very, very close mutual friends. They did not know that he was dealing with a fatal, you know, quote unquote, fatal diagnosis. And I think that there, you know, he did not want the world to see him and perceive him through that lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because when you relate to someone as sick, you rob them of any other possibility. Right. Right. Now, what you just said is interesting. I've gotten some time from time uh, funny looks when I quote this statement from Johnny Coleman. She said this many years ago in the 90s. Uh, she, she was teaching a lesson on prosperity and giving, and she was a big believer in giving. This church ties to organizations. Um, you know, uh, we've paid for, you know, organizations' payrolls. I mean, you, you were, you were mm -hmm. there at her memorial service. You heard the stories from large mm -hmm. uh, leaders in the community and the, and the nation. And mm -hmm. one of the things she said in the one day when she was teaching giving was, Never give to someone else's poverty. Mm. And when I quote the statement, people hear, they hear me say, don't help poor people. Right. What Johnny Coleman was saying was, don't view people as poor, even when yes. you help them. She would say, yeah. you are God's steward, and you're just sharing God's abundance. It's not yours. Yes, yes. But if you can't hear... First of all, your, your brain will turn off if you hear a statement like that. You're not even trying to hear the context or the nuance because the only thing you're hearing, right. not you meaning literally the proverbial you, is mm -hmm. don't help poor people. When she was really saying don't help anyone in their poverty. In other words, don't give to lack. Give mm -hmm. in a sense of abundance. Never see somebody as lesser. That's what she was really trying to say. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what is that? Does that pull up anything for you? Well, I mean, again, it just, it just sort of references back to the conversation we were having before the break around nuance and paradox, you know, like both of those are really important things to understand as a human being, period. And then if you're going to call yourself a teacher or a master practitioner or a guide or a coach, if you're not continuing to deepen your understanding of these principles and practices, you're really running the risk of malpractice. So I just think the bottom, the bottom line is we each want to create a personal experience that is, you know, increasingly joyous that, you know, I think that that's what most people want unless they just don't know that that's even a possibility, in which case you just keep recreating what you already know, you know, which is suffering and struggle. But once, you know, it's like Maya Angelou said, know better, do better, know better, do better. We always want to be growing and evolving in these concepts. And, you know, it's just, it's, I always have to, to ask myself, you know, am I perceiving this person, this circumstance, this condition before me as whole or as broken and wounded? Like, number one, I don't want someone relating to me as broken and wounded. I know that I am the divine made manifest. I am a, I am a channel for the infinite container. You know, the source of all life is right where I am, nearer than my breath and faster than my being. 
And if you can see something that I can't see, please tell me. I mean, you have been that for me as a friend. So, you know, it's just, I don't know. I just, I think it's just like, we have to, look, if you want sound bites and spiritual platitudes, social media is the perfect place for you. So is mainstream media. Like, that's what you're going to get there. But if you actually want to activate the creative capacity that lives in you, you're going to have to go beyond tropes and sound bites, period. Yes, yes. Now, I wasn't going to share this, but I, but I am going to share just because uh, it, was, it was a part of my lived experience. So um, I grew up, you know, well, after my parents divorced, my mother eventually ended up moving my sister and I back in with her parents to help us have a better experience. Uh, and uh, because of the area she lived, my grandparents lived in, and, you know, they had some money. So my grandparents <laughs> taught me, and I don't want this to uh, talk about nuance, and I want people to hear me when I say this because I love everybody. But my grandparents taught me literally, and I'm going to say it very directly how they taught me, don't rely on white people to do anything for you. That's how I was taught. <laughs> now, what was their nuance? The new one, I want people to get this because if they don't get it, then you won't get it. The, right. the, the, the conversation was my grandparents grew up in exceptional poverty, poverty that most people won't even understand. Poverty at a level to where my grandmother told me that the, the spoon that she ate with as a child at the dinner table was a spoon she found on a dirt road walking back and forth from school that she had to clean for mm. a week, basically, to make it usable to eat. My grandfather's mother, extreme poverty, grew up uh, when his mother passed away when he was nine. He had to drop out of school at, at the beginning of sixth grade. That's 11 years old to take care of his mm-hmm. siblings because his father had mm-hmm. to work. You know, my grandmother and, gra- and her twin brother had to go to school and then leave school and go work for a sharecropper for one dollar a week just to bring money back to the household. My grand, my, her brother was growing like boys do so fast he couldn't, they couldn't afford shoes. And they went to the sharecropper to see if he had used some old used shoes that my, that my great uncle could use. And they told my grandmother's twin brother, N-word, you ain't worth a pair of shoes. Literally. And you know they didn't say N-word. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, my grandparents left Mississippi because my grandfather was going to be murdered by a gang of white people because of uh, a disagreement he had over some chickens. Some people were trying to get over on my grandfather about purchasing some chickens. So when he, because he was a proud man, said something about it, they put the word out they weren't going to kill him that night. They were going to round him up like they would do many other black people and then hang him from a tree. He got on the first train out up north. I share this to say this. So when my mother was born, she never knew them working for people. My grandparents owned property. My grandfather drove a cab. My grandmother had her own businesses. You know, she had a restaurant. She had uh, a beauty shop. My mother didn't understand the concept. She went to Catholic school her whole life. She had no concept of, of her parents being anything other than exceptionally independent. But what was driving that? So when she had children, they will set us down. Don't rely on weight on anybody, especially them, because you got to make your own way. Now, that doesn't mean 
that I was trained or raised to be racist or hate people or anything else. My mentality was black is not a deterrent, will not determine my experience in America because of my grandparents in exceptional extreme poverty, exceptional racism, uh, the threat of murder can still figure out a way to make it. How dare I say, how dare I say that I can't make it in America today? Now that's my mentality. Mm -hmm. Mm. But if people, but if people only hear the story of, they told you not to rely on white people, then they'll miss the nuance and the context of why these independent business, poor black people from Mississippi created the experience of a middle class black business owner experience. If they miss the nuance of that, they'll miss the beauty of the lesson. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I'm just sharing it. I, I wasn't going to share that initially, but I feel as though it's necessary to share in the context of they might not have knew what universal law was or consciousness transformation or paradigm shifts and all this other fancy words we use, but they worked it. Yeah, they well, I mean, I think it. the other thing is, I think the other thing that you're pointing to is this is why it doesn't work to make arguments conceptually. Because, uh, you know, we have to speak from our lived experience, as you said. So, for example, my husband recently pointed out to me that I speak about the desire for generational wealth on a very regular basis. And I was like, oh, that's that's sort of interesting that he is aware of that. You know, like, like I value generational wealth. It's something I'm really committed to. Now, if you don't know much about my personal story or my background, you could just sort of peg me as a privileged, um, unconscious, you know, money-hungry woman, white woman, right? Like, you could easily do that. But if you actually know anything about me, you would know that, you know, I have spent many years on welfare. You would know that I have two children who come from generational poverty. And so for me, the pursuit of generational wealth is not just about the accumulation of riches to like serve my ego. The, the pursuit of generational wealth is to disrupt a um, past that I'm not committed carry forward in the body, in the, the muscle memory, in the DNA of my lineage, of my children. I, I, like, I've, I've spent many times you know, not not having, you know, any idea how I'm going to pay any bills, have lights cut off, have gas cut off, have water cut off. Like, there's nothing cute about that. So, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's, it's like, that's sort of my, my, you know, right now version of that, because I notice my own hesitation to talk about generational wealth, like, for example, on social media, because I know people's simplistic interpretation of reality and they won't necessarily understand the depth to which I'm speaking. And I think that we, you know, the listeners of Truth Transforms and anyone that you, Galen, and I have the capacity to influence is to really move beyond the conceptual understanding of these principles and to practice them in your life, world, and affairs, and then share your story of how it has worked for you. When I arrived at Bodhi Center 
in 2005, my life was very, very challenging. It was, it was not a life that most people would desire. There was a ton of debt. There was a lot of drama. And, you know, I had two little kids on my own. And through the power of these principles, my life looks vastly different today. And for that, I am deeply grateful. But it wasn't because I understood these principles conceptually. It was because I read these books, I took these classes, I listened to speakers like you and me, and then I applied it to my life as if my life depended on it. And as a result, what I experience today is distinct. And, and I, I get fiery about this because it's a disservice. If, if someone hadn't been as convicted as Michael Beckwith was, as convicted as Mark Anthony Lord was, as convicted as Bob Proctor, Mary Manor Morrissey, Wayne Dyer, Marianne Williamson, they were willing to say unpopular things, and I got my life as it is today out of their commitment, their devotion, and their willingness. And that is not because they are like these, you know, immature ideas of perfection that we hold up. It's because they knew these principles and practices make a difference in people's lives. They've applied them. And so again, like, I'm just gonna, gonna say it one more time. You gotta move beyond the concepts. You've got to be applying this and you have to be around an honest community of people that will bring healthy pressure and love to your practice. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, in, in my circles, you know, I'm considered the hardcore metaphysician and I only start using the term hardcore metaphysician, hardcore metaphysics. People are like, you're so hardcore, you're so direct with it. But this teaching, just like you mentioned about the generational wealth and transforming your life, when you're 20 years old and you almost die in the hospital from asthma and you're in the hospital for almost five days and got to stay home for two weeks and you're really present to that, for me, people getting this message is everything because for me, it's everything. Like literally, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we only have a couple of minutes left. So let me just quickly share this quick story uh, because this, it blew me away. So a friend of mine, uh, a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends had uh, a hospital experience. He was, he was at work, passed out at work. He woke up in the ambulance heading toward the hospital. When he realized what was going on, he didn't have, you know, and his background is not new thought metaphysics, consciousness, any of this type of philosophy we talk. Old school, Pentecostal, sanctified Christian background. And he said, when I was in that hospital, all I can remember is God is my health. I can't be sick. Because that's what I was saying Mm -hmm. when we were young men, when I was in the Mm -hmm. hospital. Because I had just learned Mm -hmm. that prayer, prayer of faith that unity uses. I'm not going to say the whole thing right now. But you know what I'm talking about, that prayer. God is my health. I can't be sick. God is my strength. I'm failing mm-hmm. quick is a part of it. And he said when he got to the hospital and the doctors are telling them this is what's going on. And he's and he's saying, nope, nope. And he's saying to himself, God is my health. I can't be sick. God is my health. I can't be sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever they had to do in the hospital, procedure, whatever, ended up uh, to this day. This was a couple of years ago. Never had any follow-up problems. Never had to be on any medicine. Uh, can't figure out what went wrong, et cetera. 
And it and it when he told me, it brought tears to my eyes because because hmm. what if I wasn't that place for him? Yeah. To where not only did he hear me say it conceptually, conceptually, but he saw me live yeah. it when we were young yeah. and broke. But he knew yeah. it worked because he saw me work it. It has nothing to yeah. do with Galen McDowell as a personality yeah. as much as can we take this stuff and model it in real life because people are always watching. We have a minute and a half yeah. left, so I want to give you the last word on that. But people are always watching. Yeah, I mean, I just feel very, I notice my body is just tingling hearing you share that story. And I just, I, I guess what I would just say is I really appreciate your commitment to truth. I know that it's been a gift for me at times in my life where I've felt wobbly. You know, I remember a conversation we had a couple months ago and you reminded me like, Lola, you're just in a wilderness experience. It's okay. And I was like, oh my gosh, you are the first and only person that provided that level of context for what I was navigating. And so I just think that like, we really do have a responsibility to hold the high watch for people because suffering is not it is not required. I always say pain, pain is going to happen. You're going to experience pain, but suffering is optional. And we have a responsibility to support people in disrupting the addiction to a struggle narrative. Yes. Yes. So uh, we only have about 40 seconds, 45 seconds left or so. So one of the things I do want to say is yet again, you definitely want to reach out. Uh, Reverend Lola gave her information. Again, it's lolawright.com, right? Yep, you got it. com. so you want to make sure that you do that. I want to just give everybody a reminder. Tonight is the beginning of my Secrets of the Millionaire Mind class. I teach it via Zoom. If you go to the Christ Universal Temple website, www.cutemple.org, click on the Classes tab, you'll see the classes and how to register. You want to make sure it's, it's, this is as inexpensive as it can possibly be. You won't find this anywhere. Because of the late registration now, you can just pay $25 to register for the class. You buy your own book, and we'll take a love offering in every class. So give yourself the, the opportunity to be connected to this teaching in a greater way to produce this abundance. Thank you, Reverend Lola. We'll be with you next week with Truth Transforms. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.